Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 4. <clears throat> psalm 4. We'll be going through this psalm this evening. And read along with me. Psalm 4. <clears throat> Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. Many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put gladness in my heart. More than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we read these words penned by David and we consider where he was at, what he was going through, and we don't know exactly, we're not given that information, but nonetheless we see his heart and his concern and his hope. So Lord, as we look at these words, help us to understand them, help us to see the implications and applications, help us to um, glean from them, to apply them to our own lives, that we may grow in conformity to Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Some of you may <clears throat> know this psalm, or at least the, the last verse, um, it's uh, verse 8. It's a good memory verse. Um, many pastors and, and counselors have uh, given that verse as homework um, to people struggling with either insomnia or um, just anxiety or worry. Um, this is a psalm uh, to uh, go to sleep, um, a, a psalm to help you sleep. Uh, and as a uh, Looking at both Psalm 3 and 4 last week and this week, um, many commentators have said that they, they in a sense, go together. And not that they're written together. They're both Psalms of David. But just the, the theme of, of sleeping or uh, uh, having trouble sleeping is in both of these psalms. And as many have said, uh, Psalm 3 is the morning psalm. Psalm 4 is the evening psalm. Um, psalm 3 testifying to how David was able to sleep, and now he's, he's awake, he's, he's awake and alive. And then Psalm 4, um, in a sense, testifying to how David is able to go to sleep, that he, at the end, says he will both lie down and sleep because of God's protection and his provision. And as I said, and, and we can tell that we don't really know 
um, the circumstances, but we can, in a sense, guess uh, uh, some of the circumstances. We see that there are enemies, um, there is trouble, there is trial, um, and David, as most of his psalms, he pours out his heart before God and, uh, in a sense, reaffirms himself, proclaims God's goodness, and uh, encourages his own soul so that he is able to sleep. Um, as many of his psalms, uh, we can uh, glean application in our own lives to, to do that in, in those times in which we are in distress. One uh, commentator, uh, he's probably the <clears throat> one um, I go to most of, uh, for the Psalms, uh, Alan Ross. And in his um, commentary, he writes this about Psalm 4. It's somewhat of a lengthy quote, but it, it's, <clears throat> it's insightful. He says this, uh, Concerning Psalm 4, he says, Its motifs reflect the prayer song, Psalm 3, in a number of ways, which is probably why it was placed after it. For example, in Psalm 3, David said that he lay down and slept. And in Psalm 4, he says that he will lie down in peace and sleep. In Psalm 3, David is filled with confidence in the presence of many who are challenging his faith. And here he has that same confidence even though many are disheartened. And whereas Psalm 3 was a praise and prayer in the morning, this psalm is an evening prayer. Uh, he quotes another commentator, Perone, seeing the similarities between Psalms 3 and 4 suggested that the interval of time between the two may have been the time between morning and evening of the same day. Um, but then he goes on, he says, there's nothing in Psalm 4 that demands it be connected to the crisis of David's flight from Absalom. In fact, the evidence of this psalm suggests a different crisis, one in which false accusations were made against the psalmist. And it's interesting, you know, you read, especially in the psalms, you read commentaries, and uh, one, especially with David, um, your mind just kind of goes to try to place this somewhere in David's life. Um, as he is pouring out his heart in, in all, the, all the psalms, and there are similarities um, throughout all of his psalms. It, it is pure emotion, as um, Spurgeon uh, famously said. He, he, he would go to the psalms as one who struggled with depression, and as many who struggle with depression, the psalms is a good place to go. And he famously said, you know, I, I, I ne I, I'm never so... Uh, low that I don't see David lower, and I'm never so high that I don't see David higher. And we just see this range of emotions with David, uh, highs and lows, and, and certainly we, we read about his life, and he went through some highs and lows. Um, but it's a good place to, to go to, to kind of relate with David, but also to see what David does in the midst of his highs and his lows. That he goes to God. He he cries out to God. That's the first place he goes to. And sometimes, you know, in our troubles and our trials, um, it may be God might be the last place we go to. Um, some, some of us, it's the first place. Um, but sometimes we, we try to work out our own problems ourselves through our own wisdom. And we might pray along the ways, but um, some... Some people, they go to God last. And David, um, 
instructs us that he goes to God first. And he prays through his trial, always. Pours out his heart. Where's his heart at? And he reaffirms himself. Dr. Will Varner, in his commentary, Awake, O Harp, he, he writes this <clears throat> concerning David in Psalm 4. He says, He could not do much about the war around him, but he could do something about the war within him. He did not want to lie in bed and worry, so he committed himself and his situation to the Lord. And that's, that's something when we're anxious, when we're worried, when we're fearful, there is turmoil within our heart. There's, we're, we're not at rest, we're not at peace, and, and there is, in a sense, a war within us. It is, um, even Psalm 42 says, Why are you in turmoil, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. And that's what we need to do in the times of trouble. And that's, in a sense, uh, part, partially what, what David is doing here. But we also see some specific requests and um, some things he says um, as he is addressing, uh, in a sense, uh, two groups here. Uh, or, in a sense, a uh, 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 God and a group of men. Or could be even... Um, the unbelieving world. And here in this psalm, we, it, we could divide it up easily into three parts, and that, that's how we're going to look at it uh, tonight. And, and we see um, three addresses, or, or three um, speeches, or uh, discourses, so to speak, or, or um, uh, to three, three people, or uh, we see him first, we see David's request, and then we see David's rebuke, his rebuke to the sons of men in verses 2 to 5, and then we see David's report. So that's how we'll look at it tonight. First, David's request, right off from the bat. It's interesting how there's not much of an introduction here. He just begins a psalm, answer me. When I call, O God of my righteousness, you have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. His, his request, his request to God um, to answer him, to answer his prayer. And, and here in this request, it reveals three things about David and, and his, his state, where he's at. We see uh, first his desperation, then his declaration. And then his dependency. Right when we begin in verse one, answer me when I call. It almost seems, it almost seems uh, uh, disrespectful or dishonoring, as he seems uh, maybe like a petulant child, or when he's he's demanding, so to speak. But. That's not exactly what's going on here. I think this reveals his desperation. He's desperate. He's in a desperate situation, and, and only God can deliver him. Only God can help him. And so he, he's, in a sense, uh, you know, as the song says, knocking on heaven's door, uh, banging, uh, as, as uh, you know, Jesus would use the parable of, the, the man knocking on his friend's doors. He, he's, he's being persistent. He's calling out to God. He's showing his desperation, his desperation to be heard. 
in his desperation to be acknowledged by God, that, that God is the only one that can help him here. And so he cries and he calls upon God to answer me because there's nowhere else I can go. And this is you know, something that in our prayers that uh, even Jesus uh, commends as uh, he even says in this parable about the man. Um, he, he gives in Luke 11 about the man uh, you know, going to his friend because he has, he has, or his neighbor, because he has some friends that come on a journey. He asks for bread. And, and Jesus is teaching about being persistent in your prayers. And after that little uh, parable, he says this. His, his, uh, the, the lesson from the parable. Luke 11, verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. But what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if his son asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And, you know, we, we sometimes when we pray, we, we maybe think of our interactions with, with uh, other people um, too much. But God is glorified in our persistence, in our begging, in our pleading, whereas uh, someone else, uh, if we persist too much in uh, a request to a friend or a neighbor, um, they will get frustrated. But Jesus commends this, and this is what David is doing. He, he's, he's just showing his desperation to God, that he almost, to the point of being disrespectful, of demanding, but God's the only place he can go to. And then even as Jesus teaches this lesson, he, he, he points it back to us in our own relationships of a father and a child or a father and a son. And we think of children when they, when they come and they ask for something. And if it's something like a treat or whatever, and, and maybe, maybe they're not supposed to have it, <laughs> you know, a candy or whatever. But if they're persistent, you're just like, okay, fine. Or, or, or even if you know they're not supposed to have it, but you, you want, you know, you want to make them happy, so you give it to them and um, don't tell mom, <laughs> you know, here you go. Um, but Jesus uses that analogy to say, do you, do you think you're more compassionate than, than the Father, than God the Father is? So, you know, be persistent. Ask, knock, seek, um, go to God, even almost to the point of demanding, uh, showing your desperation that, that I, I need an answer because uh, I'm helpless. There's nowhere else I can go. And, and this is what David does. He, he shows his desperation to be heard, to be acknowledged, to be delivered. Even uh, in Psalm 50, as as uh, God is speaking through the psalmist uh, and almost um, refuting their, their uh, rebuking the people's uh, uh, just perfunctory worship or they're just their, 
they're um, going through the motions. And he says in Psalm 50 and verse 15, Call upon me in the day of distress, and I shall rescue you, and you will glorify me. I, I, I don't need you going through the motions and giving me these vain sacrifices. Just show your dependence, your need, that, that I'm the only place you can go to. I, I, I'm your creator, I'm your provider, I'm your protector, I'm your king. So, so come to me. There, there's nothing that, that you have that I haven't created. And, and everything that you are, that you have, that is, it comes from my hand. So call upon me. And so David does this. Answer me when I call. O God of my righteousness. And we, we see his desperation. But second, we see his, his declaration. As he declares uh, a, a key character trait of God and, and where his hope lies. That his righteousness is in God alone. God of my righteousness. And, and this is the, the dilemma with, with sinful man. And with Every religion in the world, how can a sinful man be righteous before a holy God? And the answer is that, that righteousness can be found in God and God alone. That, that even as we, we come to God uh, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that our hope is to be forgiven, to be uh, cleansed, to be saved, to be delivered, and because of uh, the fact that, that God is holy and will judge every sin and there's only one way to be made right in His sight and, and that is that we need a righteousness that is outside of us, that is found in Him, uh, found in Christ. God of my righteousness. There's this, uh, you know, um, some... Believers, um, uh, they may, um, usually when they're new believers, they, they uh, think in their minds or they even uh, come to pastors or ask this question um, concerning the Bible and especially the Old Testament and ask, you know, were Old Testament saints saved the same way as New Testament saints? There's only one way of salvation and they were. Uh, yes, there is an Old Testament sacrificial system that the, the Jews were told to follow in terms of worship, but nonetheless, that, that was a tutor to lead them to Christ. And, and, and many of the saints, we, we see indications going all the way back to Abraham, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He is, uh, the, in a sense, the uh, uh, foundation or the, the, um, the example of our faith, that we are justified by faith alone. We, we are saved through faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul uses uh, Abraham as an example as he proclaims the gospel in, in his letter to the Romans. He says this in Romans chapter 4. He says this, for what does the scripture say? In verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He, he was considered righteous because of his faith. 
And then Paul goes on in Romans 4.4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes from uh, Psalm 32. And David writes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And this is what David does right here in Psalm 4. He, he declares that his righteousness is found in God, God alone. That, that he calls to him and, and um, in a sense... Uh, uh, proclaims one of his character traits, that, that, that God and God alone is righteous, and only in him and him alone can we be made right. And his hope, he, he proclaims that his hope is in God alone. Not, and not only you know, for a physical deliverance, but primarily for a spiritual deliverance. All his hope is in God. He declares... God's uh, grace to save sinners, that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love. One commentator writes this, he says, the ultimate basis for divine intervention resides in God, not in the psalmist. And we see that in, in David's desperate plea to, uh, to come to God. To seek God, to rest in God, to hope in God, to, um, to have God move on his behalf. Third, we see in his request, his dependency. His dependency. As he says, uh, um, as he follows in verse 1, You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Well, once again, almost as, as uh, the same as when he says, answer me when I call. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer, almost as a demand. But it shows his dependency, his dependency on God's grace, on his compassion. And that God actually, he's hoping in the fact that God actually cares to listen to him. As a, as a sinful man, a redeemed man, but nonetheless a sinful man, that God cares to listen, that he hears him. And as we, he says, you have relieved me in my distress, most would take this to be a, a past deliverance. That's probably what it, what it is. But it could also be a... a uh, confident hope in a, in, in a deliverance from this trial. Charles Spurgeon, in his um, famous uh, uh, commentary, is a commentary where he preached through all the Psalms, and, and he, he, it's called Treasury of David, and he writes this. He says, Here is another instance of David's common habit of pleading past mercies as a ground for present favor. 
He pleads past mercies as a ground for present favor. That, that God has delivered him, God has um, helped him, he's protected him, he's placed him where he is at. And so that would logically follow that, that he would continue to show him mercy and favor and grace and, and would continue to help him and provide for him and protect him and sustain him. And, and it's not just David that would in a sense, use that logic. But we see that in the rest of the Psalms. We see that in uh, the prophets. That, that they, they call their, their hearers and their readers to remember uh, God's help throughout um, the history of Israel and, and uh, guiding them and delivering them and saving them and helping them, providing for them. And that's the basis for um, almost to their trust in God or to um, bolster their faith. So we see David's request here in his uh, desperation, his declaration of God and his dependency on God. And then second, which is really the bulk of the psalm here, which kind of points us to what he's going through. His second address is David's rebuke. David's rebuke. He's addressed God, and now he rebukes the, his enemies. O sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. And it's interesting that, you know, you, you think of this, some of you may think this way, but, um, you know, you, you think of, of David um, playing his harp, you know, as we first see um, him, uh, you know, in, in Scripture as a shepherd boy and then as uh, the one who helps calm Saul and he plays his harp. And, and we know him, in a sense, as uh, the... Um, the warrior poet, so to speak, uh, and um, playing his songs, uh, writing psalms, uh, praying to God or singing to God. And um, I kind of picture him somewhat alone or, or uh, hunkered down with his men around him. Um, but nonetheless, I, I, I don't see, um, in a sense, uh, all the people around, all his enemies uh, they're present to, to speak to, but nonetheless, he's, he's pouring out his heart as if they were, are right there. What he would say to them if, if they were present. He, he, he speaks to God, and then he pours out his heart concerning uh, his enemies. He rebukes them. And uh, we, we see a four, in a sense, uh, four parts of or aspects of his rebuke. First, we see his response to their nature or, or, or what they are like, their, their, uh, their being. Oh, sons of men, how long will my glory become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and seek falsehood? He, he responds to their nature as scoffers. He asks, in a sense, how long will they try to turn his glory to shame by seeking after lies or slandering him, spreading lies about him? 
He responds to their nature as sinners, as sinful men, and, and lastly, as, as deceived deceivers. How long will you love what is worthless and, and seek falsehood? Not only are, are they slandering him and spreading lies and, and bringing, uh, trying to bring shame upon him and reproach upon him, um, but they're in a sense seeking what is false as well. They're seeking what is worthless. Uh, they're they're um, almost like the wicked man of Psalm 1. He responds to them. This is how he addresses them. And then second, we see his response to their slander. He, he addresses their, their nature or responds to their nature as sinners. And then, and then we see his response to their slander. In verse 3, But know that Yahweh has set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. He, in a sense, tells them that, that God knows me. You, you know, the creator of the universe, He actually knows me. So um, you should probably stop spreading lies about me. It, it's almost, you know, I, I, I picture, um, you know, the... You, you ever seen the scene, or, or maybe it was you, or you had a friend, and, and you know, the, the, the school bully, you know, and the kids, and you had the, this bigger kid, and maybe he's, he's a couple ages, um, or a couple grades above the people, the kids that he bullies, and, and one little kid says, you better not do that, because my big brother is going to beat you up. And it's somewhat along that, the same lines that God has set apart the Holy One for Himself. Yahweh hears when I call to Him. I, I can just call to Him and He'll come down and He's going to, going to deal with you. In a sense, he tells them that God has set Him apart. As we read, God has set apart the Holy One. Or it could be the Godly One in your translation. And it's interesting that he says this. Uh, one commentator, he writes this, the, the set apart. That, that's, the, in a sense, what, um, what he's, he's getting at here, that, that God has set him apart. He's set him apart from the rest. Uh, this commentator, he goes on, he says, the same Hebrew word is rendered set apart in Exodus 8.22 and make a distinction in Exodus um, 9.4. In 11, 7, 33, 16, uh, speaking in a sense about his people. He says, The idea is that God sets his special attention and affection on a person or a people in order to distinguish them um, from the rest, from the rest of society, from the rest of humanity. These are his special people, his, the, the people on whom he has set his love and his um, compassion. He goes on, he says, the Hebrew word hasid is the adjective form of steadfast love, hesed. That Hebrew word hasid, um, it may, it's, it's the, where we get the term hasidic, hasidic Jews, that, that sect of Jews who would, um, are ultra conservative, who, who are the set apart ones who follow the law, so to speak, or, or, or what they feel, that they are special, that that's where they get their name, Hasid. And it's, it's a form of um, the word Hasid, the, that, that term where we get steadfast love, God's faithful love or steadfast love. 
his commentary, he goes on, he says, this term variously rendered godly, saint, faithful one, and holy one in the Psalms refers to those who have genuinely laid hold of God's steadfast love. Here it is singular to stress that each faithful member of the people may have this confidence. David, in a sense, rebukes his enemies with this term that God himself has set me apart. He set me apart from you, from the rest of the people. That I, I am a, a recipient or, or the object of his steadfast love. He cares about me. He protects me. He provides for me. And he hears me when I call to him. David tells his enemies, God hears me. So watch out. See his, in his rebuke, his response to their nature and then his response to their slander. And then third, his response to their sin in verse 4. He tells them, tremble and do not sin. Ponder in your heart upon your bed and be still. And once again, uh, some of your translations, they might have this um, word a bit different. It might be, be angry and do not sin. Uh, uh, a verse which uh, uh, the Apostle Paul would quote in uh, Ephesians 4, 26. But it's, it's better translated tremble or quake. And do not sin. What, what it's getting at is fear God and, in a sense, fear sin. Fear God, tremble, quake, be fearful of Him, understand who you're sinning against, and stop your sinning. One commentator writes, uh, the admonition means to tremble or shake in the fear of the Lord so as not to sin. And there's a connection here. There's a connection here as many pastors have preached on the fear of God, that there is a connection between the fear of God and committing sin. Where there is a great fear of God, there is either no sin or sin is at a minimum. And where there's little or no fear of God, sin is at a maximum. Sin abounds. As even Abraham, um, he said, uh, you know, concerning uh, uh, when he, he lied about Sarah and to Abimelech the, um, the second time, he said he, he lied because there is no fear of God in that place. There's no fear of God there. And, and you can think of many cities, many places in our day and age that there's no fear of God and so sin is rampant and so there's a connection between the fear of God and the sinfulness of man where there's little fear of God there's a lot of sin and where there's uh, a lot of fear of God there's little sin man knows that he's accountable and so David is reminding his enemies of that fact fear God Fear God and do not sin. And then he goes on, he tells them to ponder in their hearts upon their bed and be still. In a sense, telling them to, to think soberly. Think soberly about what you're doing, about your behavior, about your way of life, about your thoughts, your thought life. 
Um, one of the Proverbs says uh, the, the wicked um, plans his evil on his bed. And it's almost before he even wakes up. And, and David turns that around. He says, ponder in your heart upon your bed. Your way of life, your manner of life, what you're thinking, what you're desiring. And be still. In a sense, cease striving. Cease striving after God. Repent. Which is his final response. Verse 5. His response to their need. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in Yahweh. This term is sacrifices of righteousness. It's, it's a contrite heart. It's a contrite heart of, of understanding um, your accountability to God. This is, uh, you know, in a sense, an a, a Old Testament uh, gospel call. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Uh, the sacrifices of God are a contrite heart and a broken spirit. And he's pleased in that. So turn, turn from your sin, repent and believe upon Yahweh. You see in the psalm, David's request, David's rebuke. And now the third and final address of David is David's report. Many are saying, verse 6, many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put gladness in my heart. More than when their grain and new wine abound, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. David, he cries out to God in the beginning of this psalm. And then he turns his attention towards his enemies, towards the sons of men. And he rebukes them. And, and now, in a sense, he's, he's reporting upon the sons of men, upon uh, God's favor and upon uh, the peace that he receives from God. We see in his report, he reports of their unbelief, the sons of men. As he says, many are saying, who will show us good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. He's, in a sense, uh, reporting to God um, what the sons of men are, are saying or, or what his enemies are saying. He's reporting uh, of their unbelief, their unbelief in Yahweh, that he protects and provides for his people. Saying, these people are saying, who will show us good? Uh, show us some, some good that Yahweh does for you. In the ancient Near East, uh, uh, in that uh, time and, and amongst uh, not only Israel, but all the nations around, e each nation had either one god or a group of gods, usually um, one primary god. And, and how the nation went um, was an indication of that their god's uh, favor upon them. And so... It's as if the, the people who are worshiping false gods all around them, whoever it, it may be, or um, it may be, uh, in a sense, uh, the Israelites who have, who have turned from Yahweh and, and are um, involved in idolatry, are saying, who will show us good? 
What, what, I don't even think Yahweh cares for you. They're showing their unbelief in the fact that, that they don't believe that, that God protects and provides for his people or for David. But they also show their unbelief in Yahweh in general that, that um, they don't believe that he is or that he is with the people or with uh, David or for him. And so David, you know, he reports on their unbelief, but then he also calls uh, to Yahweh, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. And this phrase goes back to the, the uh, Aaronic blessing or, or the, the um, oftentimes a benediction, this, this blessing in Numbers chapter 6 that, that uh, God uh, commands Moses and Aaron to to bless the people. It's a phrase from that blessing, as we read in Numbers six and verse twenty-two, as as uh, God speaks to Moses, saying, "This is how Aaron and his sons, the Levites, will bless the people." He says, "Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you." Yahweh lift up his face on you and give you peace. So shall they invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and then I will bless them. So, so David, in a sense, uses, takes a phrase from that and calls upon Yahweh to, to reveal himself, to, to show, vindicate um, his people and himself to confront the unbelief of the enemies. The second aspect of David's report is he reports of God's favor. As he calls upon God to lift up the light of his face upon us and, and, and show the, the enemies that, that you are and that you protect and you provide and you care for us. And then he goes next to report on God's favor. Verse 7, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. It's a, a verse that um, some of us have either memorized or we've heard in songs or seen on um, posters or, or whatever uh, things. Uh, you have put more gladness or more joy in my heart than when their grain and new wine abound. Alan Ross, he writes this concerning uh, this phrase that, that uh, David speaks in verse 7 as he reports on God's favor. He says, the verb is a perfect tense, referring to what God has done in the past. The reference to their grain and wine may be a reference to his enemies, perhaps indicating that they have resources, but he does not. But he has spiritual joy, and they do not. Or it may simply be a comparison for rejoicing at the harvest was an occasion of great joy. He was affirming that God had given him greater gladness than that which comes with full granaries and vats. In that day and age, as um, through most of human history, there was a, an agrarian society. Everything hinged on how the crops did. We don't see that so much today, but it's still true. 
that we um, are dependent upon how our, our food or, or the production of food. But it was clear in, in, in that day. And, and if, if the crops did well, then uh, they had prosperity and they had some sort of security and uh, uh, rest and, and they knew that things would go well and so they would rejoice. And not only that, but they, th- this is, is pointing at a, a harvest time, which um, for most nations, uh, and, and there, there would be celebrations. There would be celebrations at the harvest time. When they pull in their crops, and especially here, as David is pointing to a really good year, where where the the crops are about are abundant, and he says, you know, what whatever the nations or the your enemies, whatever they rejoice in, you you give me more joy. You give me more hope, more peace more rejoicing at your presence, at your protection, your provision, than when their grain and new wine abound. Whatever they hope in, whatever they would consider the best possible circumstance, just the fact that I know you and that you are my God is even better than any of their earthly circumstances. I have more joy in you than, than the richest people on earth, so to speak. David reports of the enemy's unbelief. Then he reports of God's favor. And finally, he reports of his peace, of David's own peace. And peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. He, he reports on the peace that he, in a sense, uh, receives from Yahweh. That, that in him and in God, he can have peace of mind, uh, peace, a uh, physical peace, a spiritual peace. And because of that peace, he can rest. He has the, the peace to rest securely. And this term, peace, as some of you know, is the Hebrew term, shalom. That's the greeting that Jews would give to one another, shalom. Um, and it means more than what we consider or what our definition of, the, of, of peace is. It's not just a, um, a, a neutral peace. It's not just an end to hostilities. But it, it, it's more than that. It, it's, it's prosperity. It's well-being, it's, it's goodness, it's favor, it's, it's a good state. It's, you know, only, you know, it's, as people say, shalom. Um, it's more than what we could, would consider peace. And it, it, it's from God. It, it, it relates to God specifically. That, that this peace, this prosperity, is from God. This, this reminds us of, you know, the, in the New Testament, in the Philippians 4, 6, and 7, this verse, this popular memory verse, this place that we go to when we're anxious, uh, this command that Paul gives the Philippians, and, and we're commanded as well, 
Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and petition or by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This, this peace of God that is beyond what the world knows, beyond what the world understands and just having good circumstances. And it's, it's typically um, seen most clearly in bad circumstances. That when someone has a peace of mind and a peace of heart, knowing that God protects them, God provides for them, God is there, God has helped them, God is their hope and their righteousness and their peace. And so they don't worry, they're not anxious, they're not troubled. This is a peace which surpasses all understanding, and it's a guard for our hearts and minds. This is, in a sense, what, what David is showing. He's, as Paul says, uh, he's offering prayer and petition with thanksgiving here in this psalm. And so he can testify of God's peace, which he experiences here. And he's able to lie down and sleep because he knows that God protects him. God provides for him. God helps him to abide in safety and security. John Calvin, in his commentary, he writes this. It's interesting uh, what he has written about David. He says this. <clears throat> After David, in the beginning of the psalm has prayed to God to help him, he immediately turns his discourse to his enemies and depending on the promise of God, triumphs over them as a conqueror. He therefore teaches us by his example that as often as we are weighed down by adversity or involved in very great distress, we ought to meditate upon the promises of God in which the hope of salvation is held forth to us so that Defending ourselves by this shield, we may break through all the temptations which assail us. That the promises of God are our hope, are the, the foundation for our hope and our joy and our comfort and our peace. That, that, that God protects us and He's promised to provide for us. That He has, uh, as Paul says in... Um, Romans 8, um, he who has uh, given up his son for us, uh, will he not also provide us with all things? He, he's, he's, he's saved us. He, he's, he's crushed his son for us. Will he not with that also give us all things that we, we need for life in this world? One of the main promises of God we can hope in God. I'd like to end with this. Um, turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And as uh, David began with this desperate plea and this desperate call upon God, and he declares uh, a character trait of God, he calls God the, the God of his righteousness. He's, he's grounding his hope and his, his, uh, his uh, well-being in the fact that his righteousness is 
found in God, the, God's promise to, in a sense, uh, save him and protect him and provide for him, um, not only physically, but spiritually. And as Paul speaks about the righteousness of God that is through faith, he goes on in Romans uh, chapter 4 and verse 20, and he says, with respect to the promise of God, speaking of Abraham, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to do. Therefore, it was also counted to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was counted to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be counted, as those who believe upon him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. And then Paul says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. God, our righteousness. The, the righteousness that is found in Him, in Him alone. He has made peace through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and once again, Paul being uh, you know, trained up as a rabbi. This, isn't, this term peace isn't you know, what we, our definition of peace, but the, the Hebrews' definition of peace, uh, shalom. Not just an end to hostilities, but prosperity, well-being goodness, favor, all from God, through God. Paul would also say, use this, this, this term of peace with God um, in a different way. As he speaks of um, the institution of the church through Jesus Christ, through his blood, as, as Christ uh, saves us, um, that we are saved uh, through, uh, by grace, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast, in Ephesians 2. And then further in Ephesians 2, he says this, concerning the Gentiles, concerning the Ephesians, and um, all the believers there in Ephesus. He says this in Ephesians 2, 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He himself, in, in his being, in his sacrifice, his righteousness that is imputed to us through faith, that we have peace with God. He himself is our peace, our promise, our shalom. And because of that, if you are in Christ then no matter what happens in the world or whatever the world or any enemies can throw at you, you can both lie down and sleep because there's peace with God. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me to abide in safety. The, the, the greatest need for mankind, for any human being, is salvation, righteousness with God. Hope in God. And, and if, if that has been completed, if that has been dealt with uh, uh, through faith in Christ, 
then you have peace with God. And it doesn't matter what the world throws at you, you can lie down and you can rest. And for those of us who's, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of anyone who says they never worry or they never struggle with anxiety. It's just, it's just the nature of, of, you know, our fallen flesh. That from time to time we worry, we doubt, we fear, we become anxious. And it seems as if those anxious thoughts uh, uh, come forth in, in our mind, to the front of our mind, uh, right before we're about to go to bed. And in those times, we do what David does. We remind ourselves of the promises of God. That because of God, because of who he is, because of what he has done for us, we in peace can both lie down and sleep. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rest that you offer us in Christ Jesus. As even Jesus himself said, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest, hope, peace. Peace because he has, through his sacrifice, ended the hostility. He has borne our sin for us, those of us who have repented and believed upon him. And so the most important thing for us has been taken care of at the cross. So through that promise, through that hope, we have peace and we can rest. Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Remind us often of the gospel, of the hope we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.